Oh, hi, everybody. Great to see you all. Great to be back. Uh, thank you, Jean, for your great seminar uh, last week. I was especially moved by uh, your portrait of Greta Thunberg, uh, which reminded me that maybe you saw that today in the news, uh, there was a word that the government is starting a climate corps, kind of like the Peace Corps, to train um, mainly young people in skills to do all kinds of necessary climate work. That's a very positive and cheerful thing. And I guess it's pretty small, but you can imagine that in the future, people could be Many, as many people are as, as are in the military, maybe twice as many would be in the climate corps. That would be a nice thought. Uh, also, um, uh, Jean mentioned uh, David Hinton, whose book, Wild Mind, she likes so much. And it just so happens, maybe you know this, that this coming Sunday uh, at 11 a.m., I'll be online with David Hinton because he's got a new book about Chan. So I'll be online to help him, you know, be in conversation with him about his new book. Uh, and it's sponsored by Banyan Books in Vancouver, British Columbia, where I read many times and they, they asked me to, if I would uh, participate, with, participate with David Hinton. So I'm grateful for uh, to John for taking care of seminar last week. This was not my plan. I, I really planned long in advance to be here every week in September, but um, I was scheduled for a surgical procedure. I guess you probably know that, uh, which on that very day, and I couldn't change it. This procedure, it's, it's in fact, you know, an operation is it called TERP. Just so you know, TURP, T-U-R-P, transurethral urethral resection of the prostate. And I thought it was just a kind of like going to the dentist or something, but no, it turned out to be much harder than I thought it would. And I'm not sure yet that uh, everything is going to be working. It turns out that there's a m many weeks, maybe even months of recovery. I thought it would be like hours. <laughs> so I didn't read the instructions, you know. Uh, it is not life-threatening or really very debilitating. And it is a very common procedure that lots of old men have. Uh, so, uh, you know, actually it's not a big deal. It was just a shock to me because I, it was more than I thought it would be. But this reminded me again of a prayer that Jewish people say actually every day 
if they're observant and they do their prayers every day, they say this prayer every single day. It's one of the first prayers in the morning service when the prayers all have to do with, you know, waking up in the morning and realizing, oh my God, I'm still alive. I still know who I am. Thank God, you know. So that's what their first prayers are. And and uh, you might remember this because I mentioned this last time I had my initial problems with my prostate. Uh, so here's the prayer, which I've been saying a lot. Blessed are you, God, King of the universe, who formed human beings with wisdom, creating within us tubes and openings. And the Hebrew is really striking because they repeat both these words twice. Nekavim, nekavim, chalulim, chalulim. They say it twice. Uh, I guess meaning, oh boy, there really are a lot of these tubes in the body. There's a, really a lot of them. So they say, you know, and, and the prayer goes on. Uh, it is obvious uh, in the presence of your glorious throne, dear God, that if one of these tubes were ruptured, if even one of them were blocked, it would be impossible to exist and stand in your presence. So blessed are you, our God, who heals all flesh and performs wonders. And this you should say every day. Probably that's because many of the rabbis were old men. So they wrote these prayers <laughs> and recited them every day. So I appreciate this prayer. Uh, because uh, yes, one takes it for granted that the body will work. You know, who thinks about it? You get up in the morning, you go on, and you, you don't even think about your body uh, because we're all so consumed with our minds, aren't we? With our thoughts and our ideas. Who thinks about the body until something goes wrong? But the body is so intricate and so complicated. It has so many different systems in it, all interdependent. And it is a remarkable thing that the body works so well and takes such good care of us. You know, we think of the body as us, but really the body is taking care of us. And I, and I often feel this very poignantly when once in a while in Zazen, I can hear my heart beating, you know, so faithfully so sincerely, you know, just boink, 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 goes on. Thank you, heart. You are the best. Thanks for keeping me going. All the time, 24-7, the entire life through, no breaks. So when something does not work, you marvel. Wow. Everything has worked so well until now. How have I managed to escape trouble for all this time? I didn't organize that. It's just really luck. And of course, nothing works well forever. Everything is going to break down once in a while. That's exactly what the material world is.
stuff that has the nature to break down. That is the material world. So I, I am a very good patient, I must say. I do what they tell me. And the doctors and nurses who took care of me are very good. And the state of medical science at this time is excellent. But you never know how things are going to go. And you really are not in control of determining how they will go. When I was feeling all kinds of trouble in this last week or so, and still, you know, in some trouble, there was nothing that I could do but endure it, just let it happen. What other choice is there? Endure and, and say my prayer and hope for the best because the body has its own wisdom. The body has its own destiny. The body knows what it's doing. It does it faithfully and you can't control it. Okay, enough, stop this pain. Stop this discomfort. No, you can't say that. And that's going to happen. Life is just the way it is. The body works the way it does. It is fully obedient to its conditions. The body is more than we can think and more that we can know. So what else can you do but appreciate it? and trust it, and endure. And when it breaks down, trust it even more, and be more patient. In the, in the Jewish prayer that I read for you, it's, you know, it references God and God's throne, which is kind of language that a lot of people find uh, uninspiring or, or difficult. But I, but I like it. Because it reminds me of Dogen quoting uh, Sudobo in Valley Sounds, Mountain Colors, uh, the quote that is the title of the fascicle and that John also brought up last week. The sound of the stream is his broad tongue, the shape of the mountains, his dignified Dharma body. Awakening that night in the mountains after hearing his teacher's Dharma talk. Sudangwa felt the presence of the stream and the mountain, a presence beyond form and color, and yet the very form and color itself. And he could feel that the whole world is Buddha, empty completely of our human concerns, and yet including compassionately our human concerns. And that's what the prayer is saying, just like Dogen. It is so awesome to be alive, and there is an awesome presence beyond our everyday viewpoint. In the world around us, and in our very own bodies, which after all are nothing other than the earth, a presence that we really appreciate.
and we are really grateful for. So while I was suffering, I had a fleeting thought. I wonder if my Zen practice is helping me with this suffering. And I immediately thought, what a preposterous idea. <laughs> what a stupid, who would have such a thought? I mean, here I am doing exactly as well as I can be doing. No better, no worse. Am I supposed to have some kind of like religious standard against which I should measure myself when I don't feel well? And then I should check to see if I'm up to that standard? And, and am I supposed to be a paragon of wisdom and serenity and strength so that the people in the Dharma seminar will think I really am a Zen master like I'm supposed to be? <laughs> no. What a ridiculous idea. And apart from its being ridiculous, if I were to entertain it and get into it, all that would be doing would be increasing my suffering, being miserable about being miserable, you know? <laughs> no, I'm doing as well as I could be doing. And I have always been doing as well as I could be doing since I was born, no better and no worse. And everybody, no matter what condition they're in, has always been doing exactly as well as they could do, no better and no worse. What's the difference? Somehow, millions of men have had this procedure that I've had, and with no Buddhist practice, how they did it, I don't know, but they managed to survive and endure it. They didn't practice at all. How did they do that? So, you know, it's ridiculous. What else does anyone do? What else could anyone possibly ever do but endure their lives as they are? What else has anyone ever done? And this is one thing that actually seems a little crazy to me about the popular or contemporary idea of mindfulness. At least I don't really know, know what it is, but it seems to me that the idea of mindfulness is that somehow if you are mindful, everything is going to go better. You're going to be in more control. Things will be good. Things will be nice. You will be your best self, as they say, if you are mindful. Well, I don't know. Maybe that's even true. I have no idea. But uh, still, it seems to me that it's beyond that. Things are going to go the way they go. They're not going to go in another way. They're going to go the way they go. The stream is going to flow. The mountain is going to stand firm in the sun and in the rain. The body is always going to obey its conditions, as does the earth. And your mind that you think you have some control over, you don't. There is no comparison to what might have been, or what should have been, or what we wish will be. The only thing there is, is this moment, and living it, and enduring it, and loving it the best we can. And I really think that Dogen is talking about this in Valley Sounds, Mountain Colors. When he rails against people, for practicing for fame and gain. Remember in the second part of the 
fascicle, he goes on about this, as he often does in other fascicles too. Now, as I said before, I think, you, you may think when he talks about fame and game, well, this doesn't really apply to me because none of us are practicing for fame and gain, with the possible exception of me, whose livelihood is established by you. So I, I guess I, you could say I'm practicing for fame and gain. But the rest of us are not, right? Nobody here is at the Dharma seminar hoping to become rich and famous as a result, right? I don't think anybody here has that motivation. But if you think about it a little bit more deeply, maybe we are practicing for fame and gain. Maybe we're practicing, for instance, to become better people so that we can feel better about ourselves and other people can look at us and say, oh, he's a really good person. Very compassionate, very kind. And, and that makes you feel good when you when people feel that way about you. Or maybe not, maybe we're practicing just to help us cope with life, which is, after all, tough enough. And isn't that a kind of gain? Dogen is very uncompromising on this point, perhaps even to a fault. He says, we should only practice dharma for dharma's sake, not for any other reason. Now, to be clear here, this is not Dogen being a moralist. He's not saying, shame on you, bad boys and girls who want to receive some benefit from your practice. No, he's not saying that. He really is compassionately trying to tell us that if we practice with any motivation like that, our practice is not going to help us because it's only going to reinforce our self-clinging and eventually reinforce our misery because it's our self-clinging. That's the problem in the first place, the source of all our suffering. He, he, he quotes this in his fascicle. Once a monk asked Changsha, how do you turn mountains, rivers, and the great earth into the self? Changsha said, how do you turn the self into mountains, rivers, and the great earth? And then Dogen comments on that saying, he says, saying that the self returns to the self is not contradicted by saying that the self is mountains, rivers, and the great earth. In other words, to practice beyond any sense of self-interest, beyond any gain or fame, is to return the self to the true self which is what we do when we gently let go of our clinging self, our small self. It's to remember that the real nature of who we are is already beyond 
our clinging self. In other words, we are not the way we conceive of ourselves. We are something more. Just as the mountains, rivers, and the whole of the cosmos are more than the mountains, rivers, and the whole of the cosmos. And the tubes and hollows in the body are more than the tubes and hollows in the body. Maybe that's why they say them twice. Because the body is more than the body, and the world is more than the world, and you are more than you. And the ordinary life you are living is far more than the ordinary life you think you're living. So how do we cope with the fact that if we're honest, we have to say, we don't see it like that. That if we're honest, we have to say, I keep experiencing myself as a needy human being who expects improvement and some kind of happiness that I never seem to find. Well, Dogen has an answer for that. He says, there are two things you need to practice. You need to practice vow, and you need to practice repentance. Central points in this fascicle, things that we don't usually think of Dogen as emphasizing. But he actually does talk about these things all the time. Here's the vow that Dogen wants us to take, and this is quoting from the fascicle. Together with all sentient beings, may I hear the true Dharma from this birth throughout future births. When I hear the true Dharma, I will not doubt or distrust it. When I encounter the true Dharma, I will relinquish ordinary affairs and uphold the Buddha Dharma. Thus may I realize the way together with the great earth and all sentient beings. That's the vow that Dogen wants us to take. Well, again, we might think, really? Am I capable of taking a vow like that? Pathetic person that I am? Well, true, but also not true. And remember, a vow is not something we're planning to objectively accomplish. A vow is a horizon, an aspiration, that we always commit ourselves to keeping in front of us and going always in that direction, in whatever speed and with whatever skill we can. So yes, I actually think all of us can take this vow. And when you think about it, anything less than that is not worthy of you. You, you, are, you, are, you are more worthy than you think you are. So that's how we cope with our small ability and our stumbling ways. 
we keep that vow in front of us. And that's one of the virtues of, of Sangha and, and Buddha and Dharma, is it reminds us, encourages us to take that vow. The second practice we need to do, uh, according to Dogen, is repentance. And here's what he says about that. When you are lazy or doubtful, repent before the Buddhas with a sincere mind. If you do so, the power of repentance will purify and help you. This power will nurture trust and effort, free from hindrance. Once pure trust emerges, self and others are simultaneously turned. This benefit reaches both sentient and insentient beings. Repentance is, and now he quotes lines as if this is something that we should be saying to ourselves, maybe ritualistically saying. Repentance is, although my past unwholesome actions have accumulated, causing hindrance in the study of the way, may Buddhas and ancestors release me from these actions and liberate me. May the merit of practicing Dharma fill inexhaustible worlds of phenomena and may compassion be extended to me. Well, doesn't that sound exactly like a prayer? Isn't that, what else is that but a prayer? The Jewish prayer I quoted before is addressed to God, but this prayer is addressed to the Buddhas and ancestors. Please help us out. Because probably on our own, we'll just keep churning our suffering over and over again. And we need your help. Please help us. Then he says, this is Dogen again, before awakening, Buddha ancestors were like you. Upon awakening, you, you will become Buddha ancestors. When you look at Buddha ancestors, you are a Buddha ancestor. Just like when you look at the mountain, you are the mountain. When you look at their aspiration for enlightenment, it's your aspiration for enlightenment. Working with compassion, this way and that, you achieve facility and you let facility drop away. Thus, Longya said, if you do not attain enlightenment in the past, if you did not attain enlightenment in the past, do it now. Liberate this body that is the culmination of many, many lifetimes. Think about that. Think about, we were talking before about the miracle of a human body. Well, this doesn't come easy. A whole lot of everything has gone into producing this human body, the effort of many, many lifetimes. Liberate this body that you've been given for the purpose of liberation. Liberate it. Before enlightenment, ancient Buddhas were like us. When enlightened, we will be like those of old. This is the understanding of a realized Buddha. We should reflect on it. This is the exact point of a realized Buddha. With repentance, you will certainly receive invisible help from Buddha ancestors. 
Repent to the Buddhas with mind and body. The power of repentance melts the roots of unwholesomeness. This is the single color of true practice, the true heart of trust, the true body of trust. So trust and repentance are key practices. Trust the Buddha. Trust life. Trust the body. Trust the earth. To repent is to recognize our human limitations with humility. A word that is comes from the word humus, the soil of the earth. Recognize your humility and give up guilt and recrimination, but be honest about what you are. Just know, okay, this is how I am. I don't need to pretend any different. This is just the way it is. This is my life. And then patiently trust it. That's repentance. And when you repent, Dogen says, you will receive invisible help from the Buddhas. And the power of your repentance will be stronger than your ancient unwholesome roots. He goes on. When you have true practice, then valley sounds and colors, mountain colors and sounds, all reveal the 84,000 verses. When you are free from fame, profit, body and mind, the valleys and mountains are also free. So this brings us back to our contemplation for the month. And this question of taking care of the earth and this recognition that our practice is and has always been about just that. When we are free from greed and aggression and the foolishness of our endless misguided human desires, the earth is going to be free of suffering from conditions we have created that harm her. This, of course, is not to say that we all have to become Buddhas in order to stop carbon emissions. But it does mean, I think, that in coming around to that, we are also going to be coming around to a more compassionate and caring humanity. The two are going to go together. And we're struggling. And it's another reason why, in our moment of climate crisis, at this very moment, we're more concerned than we ever have been, probably in the history of humanity, about justice and inclusion and the suffering of other people who have been oppressed forever. We're noticing how important it is that we care about one another, that we honor one another. It's no, it's no surprise that this is happening at the very moment when we're noticing the earth 
and our fundamental alienation from it that has caused this problem. The earth, the world, the human body, the bodies of all animate and inanimate things. This is not just stuff subject to technical fixes and statistical analysis. There is more to the world than this. And we have to come to know that. Everybody has to do what can be done for us. It's not a matter of sloughing off and depending on the gods in the sky to save us. But we also need to trust that the Buddhas will help us out in invisible ways. This is our liberation, isn't it, in the end? We are not what we think we are. The world is not what we think it is. It's the true sacred throne, the benevolent divine presence. It's the Buddha's broad tongue, the Buddha's dignified Dharma body. So I'll conclude uh, with uh, some earth odes. I was very inspired, you know, by the idea of odes. In that first week of the seminar at the end of August, people gave many odes. Maybe it was enhanced by the fact that we were all together in person, very exciting, in a room full of people, you know, together. Uh, But I was very uh, turned on by that, and I started writing my own earth odes, and I hope to continue. I didn't write one, I wrote quite a number of them. But, uh, and, and you know, I realized right away that, well, everything, what's not the earth? So what, what's not to be included in an earth ode? So my earth odes are a little maybe unexpected, but I'm gonna read a couple of them if I have time, I think maybe I do. This is earth ode number seven. A spiral or circle of stones, on a hill there above the roiling sea. Who can say what anyone sees, what anyone says? So praise trees, all of them, oak and madrone, alder and pine, and all the pines, Jeffrey, Ponderosa, Lodgepole, giants of the mountains round here, and the incense cedar, looking like Redwood, and the Redwood herself, noble, patient, giant, whose duffy carpet makes quiet spaces. The linden, maple, the many maples, sycamore, eucalyptus, trees I call in mind's eye and memory letters that spell the names. Your steadfast refusal to do other than stand and breathe and watch and fall in the wind in your time swaying and toppling and lie there across paths or where there are no paths into other trees are flat on the soil to make it more and lighter and fuller. The poem staggers back in awe of you, but also sunrise as today's in thinnest light, painterly light, lightest light and garden plants, rose and lemon and gladiola, where the naked ladies coming up from horny bulbs beside the calla lilies and nasturtium with round and edible leaves, and the succulents and grasses that the mule deer love to eat as they love the smoke trees and the small fruits of the strawberry tree. 
these many things the poem loves to fill its lines with naming jays, wrens, sparrows, woodpeckers, grosbeaks, quail, siskin flit in and out of arbutus tree round feeder to advance their positions for a feeder, one in, the other out, out then in in succession. Crows and vultures brood above till the banded pigeons come clumsy and huge, almost pull the feeder down in real time till fly away in flappy flutters, not unlike the nervous whirlwing of quail as persons pass on paved road wearing shoes and hear birds and look out at seas, ripples and washings and think, think about time or nothing or why not be now in snow in winter in other places? Why not more in many places one can sense to be in, but no, time and space as body make it not to be so, so breathe and breathe as ever in that so. That was Earth Ode 7. This is Earth Ode 8. Where one's assigned a place in time, a name, an identity. Look at the things in your room where you are sitting reading Things the poem is blind to, but earth knows. For nothing is exception to the rule of color. Everything, some color, some shape, even a thought's a color, a shape or the line of a poem or a poem's jawline or plumb line, hairline, fishing line, a line of credits a color. Earth knows no straight lines, no obtainable sense. Yet earth's gesture sweeps me up into form, sweeps me down into parts to return to soil, to sky, as Bairn returns to mom. At night, turn off lights, and it will be dark. But somewhere it will be light, if it's dark in other locations. Hear the bird wake up when you wake up, and let your dreams always be forgotten. In them, take up heroic causes in which your uncanniness rules. For people who love tales, there will always be heroes who will overcome obstacles to win victories. Yet in the true story of your coming to be, there are disintegrating plot lines. It's a story of cleverness, not bravery, of indirection, not victory, of ongoingness, never defeat and you read it at your peril and misunderstand. See the very dark sea churns and the blood red sky burns over it. Plunge then with your tongue into earth's dark flavor in human desperation at the glimmers of verisimilitude touching the edges of spite Renounce understanding, since there is no choice, and take your chances with the mere bluster that is your birthright, so that the seas will lip the shores without wonder or worry. 
So those are some of my earth odes, and I, I have a goal of 100. So I've got about 12 or 10 or 12, and I'm going to continue in this way, see what happens. I, I can never leave well enough alone. <laughs> Maybe some of you are like that too. A couple of things before we uh, do, do two things. The first, to see if there's anybody who has a their own climate ode or anything that they want to mention uh, about our theme. You know, I see Greg already has one, Greg Alter. Uh, but I, before uh, that, I want to just make sure I get in a couple of announcements so that we I don't forget. First of all, uh, looking forward, we are sitting this Saturday, right, at Green Gulch. And if all goes well, I hope to be there. That's my plan. Um, and I think I told you already on Sunday, I've got that David Hinton conversation. In October, uh, Chris will be leading seminar. Uh, and we will be in person next week for the final seminar on uh, environment. And I hope all of you, many of you who can come, will, will be able to come. I hope you'll be there. Uh, I think that's everything I wanted to tell you. So now, uh, let's see, maybe, uh, Maya, you're the, you're the host, so maybe maybe you can uh, see, people can raise their hands. I know Greg, I happen, he happens to be on my first screen, and he raised his hand like this, so I saw him. So let's start with Greg Alter, and then after that, uh, Maya, would you please call on people and anybody who has anything to say, um, a note or any other, maybe you have some piece of information or personal expression. Maybe we'll have that for uh, till about for, for about 15 minutes, and then after that, we'll, that'll give us time to be in groups. So go ahead, uh, Greg, and then every, everybody else who wants to go. So you have to unmute before you speak. Greg seems to be saying you, that he cannot unmute. Is that correct? Yeah. So is there something, Maya? That... Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to get to that. Oh. There you go. So, am I unmuted? You're okay. Okay. <clears throat> a little background on this. Uh, I use the uh, word teshuvah repeatedly in this. And maybe Norman knows, or someone in the group knows. There's a, another word, chazra, meaning making a return. Teshuvah refers to return. Uh, and in this time of year, this whole notion of return is near and dear to me. The other background is that I'm from the East Coast, and uh, the water was a big part of my life from early on. And so in a sense, this is all memory that was evoked by John's beautiful uh, discussion of Greta. Ode to water. Cherish the waters, Gaia said to me. Wisdom beyond wisdom. Maha, Prajna, Paramita. In the bath, stream or lake, bay, ocean, our bodies purified and cleansed. I remember Teshuvah. 
On a beach, water rolls in, carrying me joyfully. I remember Teshuva. Crabs and clams and hermaphrodite horseshoe crabs, a line dance of miles. My shallow bay yields secrets in plain sight. I remember Teshuva. Sunset, sunrise, moonrise, and starts my water so reflects ancient beginnings and endings beyond our sorrows. I remember Teshuva. Hands and feet in the running flow of H2O, whole body supported by a fast-moving wake or by the Red Sea. Listen to the measure of love and the sound of moving water. I remember Teshuva. Taste my essence, alone, and shared in coffee, tea, the myriad's bounty reflects all we grow. Blood, thicker than water, in fact, mostly is my water. I remember Teshuvah. Asan's dewdrop, where not even a drop of dew on a leaf of a word remains. Presence and absence. I remember Teshuvah. My water now has tears. I give you hurricanes, typhoons, floods, droughts, deserts, snow melt. So endings for new beginning after you are gone, children, grandchildren, all your relations, and celebrate your grief. Wisdom beyond wisdom. Maha Prajna Paramita. I remember Keshuba. Thank you. China has her hand up. Such a beautiful offering that everyone has made. I'm so grateful, proud, amazed to be present. I, I simply wanted to bring up the fact that Ron was going to play another the other part of his song. He had more of his ode, and I've been looking forward to it. Thank you. I saw Ron here earlier. Maybe is he wanting to do that? I'm not sure if Ron is still here at the moment. Yeah. Let's see. I, I guess I don't see Ron and Fern on my screen right now. So maybe Ron is, has, has needed to go away. It's late where they live, you know? Oh, it is. It's quite late. Yeah. yeah. I don't see any other hands up. Okay. Uh, well, then um, Maya can put us into groups. And uh, of course, uh, it's always okay to 
speak about anything you want to speak about, but it's also good to have a focus in case you're not sure what to talk about. So I'm going to suggest that we talk about this um, part of my talk that had to do with fame and gain and, and Dogen's exhortation that we practice Dharma for the sake of Dharma and that we practice vow and repentance. I'm just wondering how that struck you and how you feel about that in your own in your own practice, what you're feeling about that or your experience with that. So that's what I'm suggesting we talk about. And uh, Maya can put us into groups of three, and, and we should have a, a good amount of time. Everybody can talk for, for probably four minutes each. or Let's say if we do three minutes each and then a little time afterward, that'd be like 15 to 20 minutes. Then we'll have time for the whole group to, 